morning we're going to be in Isaiah 49 primarily, um, but I'm, I'm going to have you start out in Isaiah 9. So you can open up your Bibles to Isaiah 9, and then we'll eventually roll into Isaiah 49. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the topics of redemption, repentance, and then last week we looked at the pride that can keep us from both. We finished off last week with a, a plea, as we often do, to cast our eyes upon Jesus, because Jesus is the only way to defeat that pride and bring us into repentance. His kindness is what draws us to repentance. He is the one that's redeemed us. And in this portion of Isaiah that we're going through right now, our eyes will be directed to Jesus over and over again because we're in a section uh, that has in the midst of it what are called the servant songs. And Jesus is the one that fulfills those. Within these amazing poems and that are referred to as songs, we're called to look to God to understand His salvation and His plan that comes to us. And as we do, we will be able, I believe, to agree with that old worship song. It's at least old for me. that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the cares of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Casting our eyes upon Jesus is the thing that will keep us going in this life. Casting our eyes upon Jesus is the thing that will make all else fall away. Casting our eyes upon Jesus is the thing that will draw us so close to him that we can't help but change and therefore affect the world around us. And as we move towards the end of chapter 52 and 53, we're going to progressively see more and more of Jesus in that most famous of servant songs, the this, uh, famous of servant songs, the suffering servant, where it speaks of him as being crucified for us, and we'll see that in bold detail. But for now, we must be content with glimpses of God's goodness through these servant songs. But glimpses are good, aren't they? They pique our interest. They draw us in closer and closer. I can remember the first time uh, that I met my wife. It was in the most romantic of environments, Accounting 501. You see, amazingly enough, we had gone an entire year at the University of Notre Dame not even knowing each other existed. We were both from Oregon, and yet our paths never crossed. There were maybe, I don't know what, Kel, like a dozen students from Oregon, something like that. And somehow we missed each other, but I can remember the first glimpses I got of her. I wandered in from basketball practice one day and the the teacher, the professor, had restructured the class according to a personality test that he'd given us. And somehow I landed next to this this girl, right? Well, there I am, as she will tell you, with my scruffy half-grown beard and my flannel, because I'm from Oregon, and my sweatpants from the basketball team, and this little tiny backpack, because all backpacks look tiny on me. Uh, And somehow I sit down next to her and I kind of wake up because I had early morning running that morning. And I see that she's wearing an Oregon State sweatshirt. And I catch this little glimpse of her out of the corner of my eye. And I think, wow, she's, she's pretty. I want to get to know her, right? And little by little, as time went on, because of course, she's smart enough to play coy, right? Didn't want anything to do with me. She's also very smart. Uh, so I would only catch glimpses of her. I didn't get a lot of time with her. And I remember this one time across the, the quad where I saw her walking from grab-and-go lunch. She was in front of me in line, and she left and walked across the quad. And I remember just standing there looking at her. Now, some people would call that stalking. I think it's very endearing, right? (laughs) But I was sitting there watching her and thinking, there's just something about her. There's something about her quiet spirit 
she's got an intelligence about her and, and a respect and a, a strength about her. And after many years of marriage and going through cancer twice and many miscarriages, I know exactly where that was coming from. It comes from the Lord. And catching those glimpses drew me only closer to her. Now, I don't know what drew her closer to me, right? The reality is, is that the Lord is a lot more like my wife than like me. The glimpses we get of him draw us closer. And I want to do that today. I want to look at these glimpses of who this servant is. Because in the same way as catching those glimpses of my wife, the Bible, since the first book of Genesis, has been slowly giving glimpses. Now, we look back with 20... 20 hindsight in the year 2017, and we say, of course the Bible is all about Jesus, but piece by piece, these revelations were given to God's people, where they started to see this one known as God's divine agent, not like a talent agent, but one working on behalf of God. In the seed of Genesis and Genesis 2, the prophet of Moses that he declares, the king that would come from David's lineage, all these things keep preaching this glimpse of who this character would be all the while keeping his identity a clouded secret. But in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah opens our eyes in an amazing way. So beautiful are the glimpses that we have of this agent, this Messiah, that many have referred to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it gives glimpses of who this wonderful Savior is. And we're shown the miraculous nature of the one that was predestined to come and save us, bearing the name of Jesus Christ. And so my hope today as we look into Isaiah and into this servant song, the second servant song, we'll see his mission, we'll see his character, and we will indeed be in awe of God's amazing plan of salvation. We're going to see today these glimpses of the servant of God. All right, you can just write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. Distant glimpses of the servant. That's the first thing we're going to look at today. Distant glimpses of the servant. Let's dust off our memory banks a little bit and go back into Isaiah to chapters 9 and 11. You hopefully are already at chapter 9. And these beloved texts that we see every Christmas, they arise every Christmas. Uh, They help us to understand who this servant would be. And so the first thing that we're going to see here today as we look at Isaiah 9 and verses 2 through 7 is we're going to get introduced to this quick glimpse of who the servant is. So let's take a look at chapter 9, verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We're introduced to this ruler that has come bringing with him a number of things. You can write these down. 
He brings with him light in the midst of darkness. Light in the midst of darkness. This is speaking to his truth that comes, that shatters the darkness, that keeps us enslaved to the lie that God had, had tried to dismiss and remove, but we bought into in the midst of the garden. Secondly, it speaks of the fact that he brings freedom from captivity. Freedom from captivity. It speaks of him breaking the bondage, breaking the yoke that is upon his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor that beats him. Freedom from captivity. And third, this section speaks of the establishment of justice. The establishment of justice. Not only will this servant come as a servant, but in some way, somehow, this servant will establish a reign of God where justice will be the rule. How that's possible, I don't know. How a servant can become a king, I don't know. But we'll find out as we continue on. Let's move forward to Isaiah 11. Turn just a little bit to the right to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11, yet another section that we look at often for Christmas. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now we add some more things to the list here. Not only did we see that he brings light into the darkness, not only did we see that he brings freedom from captivity and establishes justice, but here we get a little bit more of a glimpse. We see, first and foremost, that he's empowered by the Spirit of God. You can write that down. Empowered by the Spirit of God. Over and over and over again, it says right there in the first couple verses, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God. We also see that he's delighted in by God. Delighted in by God. This servant would come and be such a servant, would be so obedient that God would delight in him. And then, of course, again, we see that rule of justice, just like we did in chapter 9. We catch these glimpses of this divine agent. And here it seems like a ruler, a king, one who would come in power. But then, as we've gone through Isaiah, this divine agent seems to fade a bit into memory as God's dealing with the disobedience of his people. Talking about the exile of Israel and Judah and the judgment of the nations around them. But as we've seen in chapters 40 onward, these glimpses start to get more specific. And we start to see, we start to see this servant. The servant starts to come up And the first place we see him is Isaiah 42. Let's go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is the first of the servant songs. Let's take a look at verse 1. Behold my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This first of the servant songs gives us a little bit of a glimpse into who this servant is. We talked about the ruler in 9 and 11, but here we start to get an understanding of the servant of God, the Messiah. And this will connect very much to what we go through today in chapter 49. The first two servant songs are in 42 and 49, and they help us understand his character and his mission. His character and his mission. As we get to a place, though, where um, we start to see the next two servant songs and we move into chapters 50 and 52, we'll start to see how that servant would accomplish his mission. Hopefully right away in here, here in 42, we notice the same elements from chapters 9 and 11 occurring. Hopefully you guys notice the same things in chapter 42, that there's empowerment by the Spirit. He's delighted in by God. He's sent to establish justice. There's a restoration of all things back to the proper order. We've talked about righteousness a number of times, and righteousness is an innate quality of God, but righteousness, as he comes to restore it, and justice, as he comes to restore it, is to put things back in their proper order. You guys ever feel disordered? You ever feel like life is not going the way it should? You ever feel like you're kind of in chaos? Things are not in the way they should be? relationships seem to go badly no matter what you say or do, the other person gets offended and vice versa. The justice and the righteousness that God is going to bring into place is a restoration of all things back to their original order. Not the original order of the fall, but prior to that, when God is king and we are his creation and we are thankful for it. God, man, and creation back in their appropriate places. And God specifically states that the servant is sent or given for three reasons here. Again, the light of truth, the freedom of captivity. But in this section, in chapter 42, we start to see another thing that happens. Covenant promise. That last one added. We see these same things in the servant of Isaiah 42. Empowered by the Spirit, delighted in by God, justice within God's reign, light into darkness, freedom from captivity. But then he adds in that he will give him as a covenant promise to the nations. Now this is so very, very important because we must understand that the servant isn't just one bringing news of the covenant. He is the covenant promise. How many of you in this room today want to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. That only comes through the one that is the covenant. And this is why there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. 
There is no other name given among men underneath heaven by which we can be saved because only Jesus was given by the creator of the universe as the covenant. And so in order to be in Christ is to be in the covenant. We can't have the covenant with our creator God without covenant through Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so now we're seeing that ruler from 9 and 11, and we've compared it here to Isaiah 42 where we see this servant. One is the conquering king, and yet one is the suffering servant. The suffering servant obediently allowing himself to be beaten and bruised and looked at wrongly. And the conquering king coming as one with justice and righteousness to establish God's reign. And these are the glimpses, the historical glimpses that we get moving into the second servant song, our text for today, Isaiah 49. Why don't you skip ahead to Isaiah 49. We're going to start there in verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1. And what we're going to see is glimpses of the servant's mission. Let's look at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord God called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth." God calls out here not just to his people Israel, but to the entire world. He begins with this statement. The code word there is coastlands. Whenever the Bible speaks of the coastlands, right, we think, oh, the coast, no big deal, that's us, Oregon. He's speaking to the farthest reaches of the people in the world. He's not just speaking to his people. He's speaking to the ends of the earth. And why is he doing it? Well, he's saying to them that they have to hear what he is going to say. He is pleading. Look there at verse 1 when he says, listen to me. Very rarely, if ever, do prophets who are human step up and say, listen to me. What do they always do? They say, listen to God. But this is an autobiographical statement by the servant himself, by the ruler himself, by Jesus Christ himself saying, all the nations, I beg of you to listen to me. Why? Why does he do this? Well, the answer is found right there in verse 3. God said to this servant, you are my servant Israel. What? This is very confusing, the switching back and forth, but here's what you need to know. It's actually pretty easy. Israel was called by God for one reason and one reason only, and that was to witness to the nations of his goodness and character. They were to do this by living together as a people obedient to the Word of God. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Okay. Hopefully you can remember a few of them. In the Hebrew, the word for commandment is word. The ten words. 
When you watch that uh, great movie with Charlton Heston, right? It's called The Ten Commandments. You can recognize that the Hebrew is the ten words. Moses was given ten words by God. Every single commandment says lo, and then the, that's the negation in the Hebrew, and then whatever it is. No murder. No adultery. He gives them ten words. The Word of God was delivered to them. And what they then got was they got an enlarged view of the law of God so that they could act within it to show the world His character and who He is. But as we all know, how did that mission go? Did it go well? Did the Israelites do what they were supposed to? This is question and answer time. Anybody out there? No? Okay, there we go. They didn't. They failed in that mission. Like all humanity, like me, like you, their hearts were so far from relationship with God that they could not obey. It was inherent in them that they disobeyed. But as we hear God's Word, God's Word does a work in us that if our hearts are soft, we'll start to understand this truth that our hearts are hard and realize that we cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we work. The Lord's Word convicts us of His truth that we need Him. We can't just white-knuckle it and do it on our own. His Word is intended to cut deep inside of us and help us to understand how badly we need Him. It's intended to separate the sheep from the goats, the disciples from the wicked, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven from the citizens of the kingdom of of darkness. It's intended, His Word is intended to separate those who have softened hearts that desire to obey from those with hardened hearts who only have a desire to disobey. And as we see in the text this week, but also more so next week, we're going to see that the point of the Word of God is to break us, to rebuild us, to separate us from our own sin, to recognize that we are ultimately depraved. But that God loved us so much that He gave us His grace and His Spirit to rebuild us. He says right here that God made His mouth like a sharp sword. This is reminiscent of what was said in Isaiah 11.4. Remember this. Uh, We just read it. He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. You know what's crazy to me? Think about that picture for a second. How does words destroy? How do words kill? Well, we all know. It's very easy. Someone says something that's a cutting remark to us, and it will rip us from the inside out. When Jesus comes, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. What is the rod of his mouth, guys? It's this thing that you hold in your hands. This is the Word of God. And if it doesn't strike you now, if it doesn't cut you now, if it doesn't soften your heart now, then you will unfortunately be the one that will bow the knee when He comes with the ultimate rod of His Word. We must be people that dig into God's Word. It's powerful. It separates the wheat from the chaff individually, but even within each of us, guys, it separates our hearts from the Lord's. Why is it so important to fall in love with the Word, to be in the Word? Because otherwise you have 
no guarantee that you're not just operating on your own all the time. You don't, and I don't, have the wisdom inside of ourselves to suddenly go, oh, that's what God would think. Only the Word of God tells us what God would think. It breaks my heart so deeply as a pastor, but just as a Christian, when I see people discounting the instruction of the Word to simply fit their own desires. And you think, I think, that we're getting away with it. When the Word says in black and white, don't do that. And we do it anyway because it feels good to us. We think we're getting away with it. But the reality is, is you're not going to. So why not repent now? Why not invest in the Word even though it hurts? Guys, when I first became a Christian, I hated reading the Word of God. You know why? Because it was true. Oh, there he goes again, cutting to the quick. Oh, yeah, there's another thing I do. Oh, man, right? Well, we as humans, we don't love being criticized, do we? What? It's not criticism, folks. I was putting it like this in our leadership, recent leadership meeting. We don't just look as, at sin as something that makes God unhappy. Here's how you need to look at sin. You need to look at it as someone hanging by their fingernails off the edge of a cliff. And the Word of God is the rope that will bring you up from that cliff. In fact, the Word of God is the very realization that you're even hanging from a cliff. None of us wants to know that, but the reality is, is you're either going to hear it here, today, or you're going to hear it there at the end of days. How much better for you and for me to subject ourselves to the Word of God. We are not gods, therefore we cannot create in our own minds what the will of God is. We must stick to His Word. This Word is sure. Let God be true and every man a liar. Israel could not fulfill their mission, and so this servant would need to come in their place just like he had to take your place and mine. This servant would come to fill the role that Israel could not. He, in fact, would do what they couldn't. He would establish a new Israel in which there was no Jew nor Greek. Jews are in the new Israel. Gentiles are new in the new Israel. Only those that are citizens by faith, no longer just by ethnicity. Just like Moses drawing the people out, creating one new people, Jesus drew his people out by faith. And this is why the book of Romans says this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is by faith that we belong to the people of God. The first Moses delivered the people of Israel from their bondage and handed them to the word of God from Mount Sinai. But he even knew that that wasn't the final word. Look at what Moses said to the people 1,300 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. He quoted God in saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that, I sh that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Guys, it does no good to run away from the Word, to be scared of the Word of God, to hope that, well, maybe if I don't hear it, He won't hold me accountable to it. No, guys, it's sitting there in black and white, ready for you to read it. Don't be afraid of it. 
don't be afraid of it. My biggest encouragement to every single one of you in this room is don't sit down to try and find some mystical nugget of truth in the Word. Just read it. And then read it again. And then read it again. And then read it again. Let your Bible be the most well-worn tool in your entire house. Read it over and over and over because it is the truth of life. I am dumbfounded when I sit down with, with Christians who don't know the basics of what Jesus said. Don't even worry about reading the whole Bible. Just start in one of the Gospels and read that over and over and over and over again. The Gospels were created in such a way that you can have a core of Christian knowledge just by reading through the Gospels. And then come to church on Sundays and allow me the honor of helping you walk through the Word of God. Because Jesus... His word is important. And he comes crying out to all of us, listen to me. God has made my mouth like a sharp sword and it's intended to cut away the flesh from the Spirit. And so Jesus was truly that greater than Moses that drew us out of captivity. He's the greater than Moses that gave a new word of God that was really just the clarification of the old world. Remember how many, old word, remember how many times Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. In essence, he was giving them the truth of God's law and he boiled it down very simply. He said all the law hangs on two. What are those two laws? Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love one another as yourself. He gave a law that was really the clarification of the law that was given to the Jews. And he symbolically established the head of 12 new tribes of Israel. Why are there 12 apostles? Well, because those are symbolically creating a new Israel with new tribes represented not by blood lineage, but by believing and following Christ. And in doing this, he would accomplish two purposes. And this is the mission that we're going to see as we continue reading through this. This servant to come would accomplish two purposes. The first one is that he would not replace and remove ethnic Israel Instead, he would pave the way for them to be restored from their disobedience. He would restore Israel. That's the first part of his mission. And the second part of this servant's mission would be to proclaim salvation and a call to all people, even Gentiles like you and me, to be drawn and enter into the kingdom of heaven in relationship with him. And only through him. And so Isaiah will now step forward and tell us the results of this mission to redeem Israel and declare good news to the nations. He says there in verses 5 and 6, he says, it's too small of a thing to just go and restore Israel. I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth as a light to the nations. Take a look there at 49.7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is the first point at which we start to see this idea of the servant being despised and abhorred. He's made to be a servant of all rulers, and yet he will become the ruler of all that brings all kingdoms to their knees, forcing them to bow down to his majesty. And we see this connection of all the places we've looked at today. Chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 42. 
Again, it says right there that he is going to be the one that establishes as the Holy One of Israel. He's going to be the one that establishes Israel and the nations. Keep reading there in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you, and notice this, give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. See the same wording, the light in the darkness, the captivity. And again, he states this covenant to the people. Guys, humanity, we do not deserve a covenant with our Creator God. What we deserve is death and hell and removal from His presence. But He lovingly has given of His Son as the covenant. Why is it that no one can come to the Lord, come to the Father, but through Jesus? Because He's the only covenant. It would be like trying to go buy a house without using the contract established by the mortgage company. You can go and squat there, but eventually you will be removed. Why? Because you didn't act within the covenant that was there for the house. The same thing is true of anyone who says, I can have relationship with the Father God, the Creator, but by my own way. Only the covenant of Jesus Christ can draw us back into relationship with Him. We see that the servant is a light shining in the midst of darkness, drawing people out towards the Father. Then he says this phrase, They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. He uses Exodus language here to talk about all of us that he's drawn out and pulled towards him. He has delivered us from bondage just as he did the Israelites out of Egypt, caring for us along the journey, all while establishing the reign of God's kingdom. All the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I think often the reason that these things ring hollow for us is because we never realized we were in darkness in the first place. We never realized we were in bondage in the first place. I don't need anyone to save me. I'm doing just fine as I am, but the reality is we so badly need Jesus Christ. Oh, the good news of the glorious gospel. And yet, in the middle of this understanding, there is this paradox that happens in verses 13 and 14. We cry out and we say, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. We cry out, rejoicing, Blessed are you, King of the universe. You have done amazing things. You have restored not only the earth, but the heavens, and your work will be accomplished. But in the midst of our rejoicing, there is this downcast face that we see. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Here we see God's people seeing the rejoicing that's going on by us, the Gentiles. 
but saying and questioning God, saying, what about us? Remember that the Judahites were still under the burden of Babylonians, uh, Babylon's captivity. They were just now coming home at this point uh, in their nation's history. And so they're saying to God, God, this is great that you have enlarged the tent stakes of your kingdom, but we are still broken here. We are still under captivity. And God's answer here, we will see glimpses of the servant's covenantal love. We will see glimpses of the servant's covenantal love. And this love will be uh, specifically here for the Jews, but the reality is, is that we can take huge encouragement from this section we're about to read. Because what we will see here is we will see that God does not change. He is a God always desiring that he will draw people to himself. Folks, when it comes down to the relationship with God, it is not our disobedience. Let me put it this way. When it comes down to the relationship with God, Our disobedience is the only thing that separates us. Because if it's up to his covenantal love, it will always ring true. It will always draw us close. It will always pull us near. God's love never fails. It never goes away. Let's take a look there at verse 15. The Lord answers Israel and he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. In the midst of Israel's feeling of neglect, God reassures them of his covenantal love. And twice now, he said, not only will he proclaim the covenant love of God, but he will actually be the covenant. While God acts alone in the work of salvation, giving you and I his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we have to do the one thing that he requires of us, which is to accept that love. Now guys, what does accepting that love look like? It's not a work that we can boast. It is simply saying, I am nothing, you are everything. I know nothing, you know everything. I empty myself, I receive you. How many of us in this room are like that? Are you still in your mind, in your brain, trying to work in a way where you can fit God into what you understand? Or have you simply given up? That is what Christ calls all of us to do. Give up. Surrender to him knowing that he is loving and that his covenantal love will last for all eternity. I can understand why we would not surrender ourselves to someone who is not loving. But when we look at the Lord of the Word, we see that he is nothing more than love. But Hans, why does he talk about discipline? And why is there suffering? And why is there punishment? And all the questions we ask. Guys, that has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with us and our failure and our disobedience as mankind. In the midst of that dark storm cloud of our disobedience, God's love keeps breaking through. And this has always, always, always been the plan. 
to Israel, he would say, you haven't been the only goal. The goal has always been all people of the nations. Remember in Genesis 12, what was said to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, to your, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Guys, this wasn't Jesus suddenly becoming a prosperity gospel expert saying hashtag blessed on his Instagram account, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. We don't become a blessing in order to bless. That's a very Christianese, American, prosperity culture thing, that we are rich, therefore we are supposed to be generous because of it. That is true. But what he's talking about here is the blessing of seeing God's character. It was through the people of Israel that God eventually brought his son. And while Israel failed in their job to show the character and love of God, Jesus did not. Jesus fully accomplished the mission of showing who God the Father is. God didn't simply use Israel in order to get to the world. He was always trying to gather the entire world to him. He could have easily turned away from mankind, turned away from Israel, destroyed us at our first act of disobedience. But our Father, God, is so, so good that he continues to shed his grace upon an unworthy people, giving us room to repent time after time after time. Oh man, if we could just get this. The grace of God does not gloss over our sin. It doesn't say, oh, no big deal. The grace of God allows us room to repent. To say, I surrender, God. I surrender my ways, my thoughts, my opinions, my feelings, and I surrender them to you in complete allegiance. That's what repentance is. Repentance is to lay down your life, to sacrifice, to even respond to him a little bit in the sacrifice that he already gave us. Now, how can we be assured of this, that God is always love and that his covenantal love lasts forever? Well, because of who he is and who he portrays himself to be in the pages of Scripture, but most importantly, in the act of giving his son to die on the cross for you and for me. God is eternal, never changing, never forgetting, always faithful to his covenant people. And notice the imagery that he uses here in chapter 49. He begins first with the picture of a relationship of a mother toward her nursing child. And he says, even you ladies, you, you might forget your child, but I, I will never forget. Why will he remember Israel, a nation that disobeyed him so completely? Well, because his salvation, his salvation was out of his love, not their obedience. The salvation was given because he is a God of love. And the way that he knows it will always last, look at verse 16, is he has something to remind him for the rest of eternity. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. The word there in Hebrew means to engrave as if with a chisel in stone. Any of you ever done any stonework with a chisel? You can't just erase it, right? You can't just press the delete button. It's there. It is there forever. And because of it's the work of God, it will last for all eternity. What is this engraving on the palms of his hands? 
On that day, he was taken to be crucified. They took nail spikes. We're not talking penny nails. We're talking the spikes that are used for railroad crossings, for railroad tracks. And they were pierced through his wrists, his hands. He was nailed to a cross for you and for me. And over and over again in Scripture, it shows us that He will have these marks for all eternity. A resurrected body, but bearing the marks of your sin and mine. In the book of Revelation, it says that He will come and He will be able to show us the marks of His hands. I want you to pause for a second and think about what that will be like. The day that you stand before your king and he welcomes you into heaven and he says, I loved you so much that I not only bore these marks while on earth, but I'll bear them for the rest of eternity. What will be my response? What will be your response? I would guess that my response will be something like falling upon my knees thanking Him profusely for His goodness, weeping at the constant disobedience of my life that in no way respected those marks. And yet, He will pick us up and He will welcome us into His kingdom, not out of a grace that dismisses our sins, but out of a grace that paid for our sins and calls us to be regenerated to walk in the same obedience that He walked in. When we look at the crucifixion, folks, all else passes away. That debtor that's calling you to collect the debt, that project at work, that thing you have to get done today, the stresses of life, all those things we put as larger priorities, they all pass away. All those feelings we allow to overrule His Word, calling for obedience, it suddenly loses power. The Father's love was so great for you and for me, for those of us that desire relationship with Him, that He gave His Son, His servant, to voluntarily be crucified for you and for me. Innocent on all counts. Pure before God. Yet He took on my sin and yours because He loves us more than even a mother does her own child. What news, what thing, what event in this life could ever outweigh that? You see, the key that I've been told by many people way smarter than me to pastoring is this, is to get the people of the church to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Because if you do that, all else will fall away. It will become the only thing in your life, the only priority that necessitates care. And everything attached to that crucifixion, God, His Word, His Spirit, His people, that will become our one and only care. My hope is that we could be like his disciples when they saw those nail-scarred hands. In John 
chapter 20, on the evening of the day that they were gathered together, the first day of the week. They were already starting the habit, the disciples were, of meeting on, on the Sunday of the week because that was when he resurrected. And so they were gathered in a loose sense for church here, and the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Remember the spear that went into his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think unfortunately, in my life, there have been so many points of blatant disregard and disrespect and disobedience to Jesus that I was never glad when the gospel was presented to me. I was always fearful and scared and worried and anxious that I had to earn his love, that I had to try harder, that I had to be better. And then it dawned on me that I had mischaracterized God altogether. I didn't even understand who he is, that he is one who gave his life for me, not because of me, but because of him. He draws me to him. He draws you to him to show that he is love. When we get that, when we understand that, the only outcome of the cross for us is gladness. It is a joy to serve Jesus at that point. It is a joy to lay down your life. It is a joy to be crucified on his behalf. We are glad to do all of it because of what he did for us. Because he loved us more than even a mother could her nursing child. Let's notice the other relationships he gives us pictures of. Verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? He pictures here a mother that has lost her child. And she's in bereavement, mourning the loss of her kids. He's speaking to Israel here and he's saying, yes, you've lost so many in disobedience. You've lost so many in exile. But because of the plan of the servant, the plan of God, more will come than ever could be imagined. The openings of salvation, just not just from Israel, but to the nations of the world, will now bring more children than Israel could ever understand. For any of you in here that have lost a child, and you look forward to that day where you get to stand in heaven greeting them for the first time face to face, imagine the joy that you will have when you hug them for that first time in the presence of God. My wife and I have 13 children that we will be, at the least, that we will be seeing for the first time in the Lord's presence. The joy and gladness that that brings, understanding that that will one day occur and I will get to see those kids that for now feel long lost. That is the joy that God is speaking to Israel, saying all of these people you've never even seen before or known before, one day they will be brought to you and you will be joined together with them in relationship. He continues in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations 
and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. There's this love shown by the people of Israel welcoming in the rest of the nations. This church is pretty well acquainted with that because it's using the imagery of the foster system. Many of you in here as foster parents know that there is a love that cannot be spoken of because it's not a love that is joined by blood, but it's a love that's joined by choice. That you've chosen to love these children regardless of what they can provide for you and in fact knowing that oftentimes they will actually be problematic because there's systematic brokenness in their life and yet you lay down your life for them anyway. God is speaking to the people of Israel and saying children will be drawn to you to create in essence a forever family, a family of faith that will be drawn together for all time. Now, some believe as they read this, and even back in this day, they did believe that this was speaking of Cyrus allowing the Jews to leave Babylon and move back to Israel. But the problem was is that the Bible and all of history tells us that very few actually did move back. So this is not speaking of that, but the question that comes to mind is, why didn't they move back when they were freed from captivity? When they were let go out of Babylon, why didn't they just run back to Israel? And here's the truth. The people of God, of the kingdom of God, had become so comfortable and pleased with their life in the Babylonian kingdom that they would rather stay in that kingdom of darkness than allow the freedom that God had given to open up the road to run back to Jerusalem. And I believe that many of us in here today have this same problem, this same barrier. We hear about the kingdom of heaven, especially every week going through Isaiah, and yet the kingdom of darkness is so comfortable. And maybe it's not even the kingdom of darkness, maybe it's just the kingdom of this world. But Hans, I really like my stuff, and I like thinking about things the way that the world does. Don't let the kingdom of this world choke out the fruit that the Lord wants to grow in your life. Don't let the relationships, the jobs, the stuff, the things of this world become what kills the fruit that the Lord is trying to build in your life. Instead, look at the cross, look at his love, understand these pictures he's given us of how much he loves us and shed all that is not of Jesus Christ. Because he has come for us and nothing can stop him. Take a look at verse 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? We would all answer, no, of course not. They're too strong. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. 
he finishes off this chapter by promising that his plan will be done. Nothing can stop him in bringing those that are truly his back to himself. No amount of oppression will keep his children from him. And no amount of self-confidence or pride or believing that we will get away with it will keep us from having to deal with his judgment. All flesh will know that God the Father is God. And we will know that his servant is Jesus Christ. My prayer for us today is that we would look to the cross. And for those of us that are following him, not in perfection, not in perfect obedience, but recognizing that we are flawed and failed people, needing to surrender everything to him, my prayer for us today would be that we would look at the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ and we would be glad to know how much he loves us, that he is there for us, that nothing will keep us from the love of Christ and that we would grasp fully the truth, the truth that one day he will come back. As you're making decisions this week, I want to give you a charge. I want to give you something here to work with this week. As you're making big decisions and little, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I making this decision in light of the truth I know that Jesus will return? I fear that so much of what we decide and what we do is based upon the here and now and what feels right and what looks okay in the here and now. And the reality is, is this is truth, folks. If it weren't truth, I would not be here and I definitely wouldn't be wasting your time. Do we live in light of this truth that we are loved by God and He is returning for us? For anyone in here today that may not know Him, Maybe you think that you're a Christian, you profess that you're a Christian, but your life, and you know it because of today's sermon, the Word of God strikes you and you recognize that you are walking in blatant disobedience to His Word and His character. If that is you, today is the day to recognize that He has given you room to repent. Do not go one more minute in blatant disobedience, folks your heart, heart will just get harder. And the chances of pulling yourself up from that cliff will get less and less. Let today be the day where you walk in His grace that is room to repent. Regardless of where we stand in our Christian walk or our lives, the second servant song calls us to cast our eyes upon Jesus, to see what he did for every one of us. To understand his love that is greater than a mother to her nursing child, a foster parent to their child, a bereaved mother hoping to see her child again. All of these, as beautiful as they are, pale in comparison with how much Jesus loves you and loves me. Let us look to the servant this morning. Let us be drawn into his covenant love. And let us join him on his mission to take the light of the gospel to the nations around us.